0: Take your left hands out like this. We're going to sing together. We're going to sing together. Remember, it's the rhythm of uh, six. You're going to uh, hit the person's hand to your right, to your right, their left hand, your right leg, your left leg, down, and your, twice on your, their hand, your leg, your leg, up, down, twice. Their hand, your leg, your leg, up, down. There we
1: go. Okay, not too bad. We're going to sing. Here we go. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together, Lord, bind us together with love. There is only one God there. There is only one body That is why we sing Bind us together, Lord Bind us together With cords that cannot be broken Bind us together, Lord Bind us together, Lord Bind us together with
0: love. Excellent. Now take your Bibles, please, and turn to me to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. This, when we sing that song, it's a perfect opportunity because all those elbows your parents have given you over the years in church, now you look at them smugly because they just can't do this. So it works out. It's good balance. Good balance. Romans 14, we're going to read the first two paragraphs of this chapter in Paul's letter to the Romans. And uh, if you have your Bibles open, that would be excellent. If you don't have a Bible, use the one in the pew. If you don't have a Bible at all, please take that home with you as a gift from us. We would love for you to leave with a copy of God's Word. Romans 14, starting in verse 1. Except the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters one person's faith allows them to eat anything but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does for god has accepted him who are you to judge someone else's servant to their own master's servant to their own master servants stand or fall For ourselves alone. And none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life. So that he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. I said that the wrong way, didn't I? The dead... That's important. That will come up later. The dead... (laughs) And the living, that will prove my point a little later, we'll get to that. Well, we don't like to admit it, brothers and sisters, uh, but it's true, we Christians sometimes struggle to get along with each other. Uh, We sometimes fight, we quarrel, we fume, we split, sometimes we have gone to war with each other. And while we're being honest about this, we have to confess that we Christians have had this problem for a long time. You don't have to read very far into the New Testament to understand this. Along with all of the wonderful things that the Bible says about the church, the church is a manifestation of the wisdom of God. It's the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. It's, it's uh, God's plan from the foundation of the world to form this church. The Bible says wonderful things about the church. It also says that uh, we, sometimes we just can't get along, even from the beginning. Even apostles sometimes couldn't get along. Sometimes we fight over things that are worth fighting for. Uh, there are truths in the scriptures over which we cannot compromise. There are claims that the Lord Jesus makes on our lives that we cannot deny. And so we, we split. We fight over those things. Every year at the end of October, we celebrate Martin Luther... Uh, making a stand for one of those things that we cannot deny, uh, justification by faith alone. We celebrate that. He did not intend to split the church, but that's what happened, and, and it was a good thing. It should have happened. Most of the time, though, I think if you could calculate somehow on a chart all of the reasons why followers of Jesus have fought with one another, if you could tabulate and classify all of them, my guess is that most of those splits have been over small, uh, eternally insignificant, relatively petty things. That's the way sometimes we are. We fight about buildings and budgets and music and ministry styles and personalities and pews and choirs and curriculums. uh, Things that are clearly second, third, fourth order uh, truths, priorities we have this passage of Scripture that's open before us, Romans 14. Paul here in this chapter is trying to forestall the church in Rome from fighting over verse, what verse 1 says is disputable matters. Your translation might actually say opinions and not disputable matters. Uh, for the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul's been writing this letter and he's writing about eternally significant truths, really important, essential teachings, that's not what he's talking about here in Romans 14. He's not talking about here about matters that the Bible repeat uh, speaks about directly and repeatedly, things that are central to our faith. He's talking about matters that are ruled largely by your conscience, uh, peripheral things about which we can disagree. People enter the church with all kinds of different uh, through all kinds of different doors, and they bring with them convictions, convictions about things. Convictions about things that the Bible doesn't address directly and repeatedly. Can you identify some of your convictions? That'd be a sign of actually good spiritual maturity. Can you identify in your life the things that you hold to that are essential and the things that you hold to that are your convictions that are less central? Uh, When we started looking at this passage and its companion in 1 Corinthians, we learned that, that some of these convictions that people bring into the church can come from their religious past. There were Jews who were now following Jesus who had been taught their whole lives that obeying God means keeping dietary laws and observing special days, and they were struggling to give those things up. Likewise, there were Gentiles, this is maybe the problem in 1 Corinthians 8, who had come from a life of terrible idolatry and, and they were in churches now and, and they, the, their past was so soaked in this idolatry that they couldn't do anything, they couldn't have anything to do with idolatry at all, even, sell, uh, even eating leftover meat that had been slaughtered in a temple. They could not do, have anything to do with that because of their past. I once read of a man who was involved in a satanic cult and as part of this satanic cult's rituals, the worshipers would listen to music composed by Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach, Which uh, the most terrible use for this godly man's music. For several years after he became a Christian, he, whenever he heard Bach's music, it brought back those terrible memories. It was, it was uh, uh, tortuous for him. Here, here's an illustration of how you might understand how, how this works. Um, in your house... Did you have to clean your plate before you could leave the table? Right? Um, wasting food is bad. It's wrong. You have to eat all the food on your plate before you can leave the table. And to this day, if I'm sitting in front of my plate, I could be very full. But if it's food there, you have to eat it because it's a sin if you don't. Right? My conscience troubles me. There are starving children in Africa who would love to have the food that I have. Tony Merritt is a pastor. He's a, a seminary professor in the South. And uh, several years ago at a conference we went to, he was talking about his family's experience with adoption. He and his wife have adopted several children from overseas, some from Africa. And he said uh, the first time that he brought those kids home, his, he and his wife set before them a heaping plate of healthy food. And he said, This is when I realized that my mother had lied to me all these years. She told me that I had to eat all these disgusting vegetables because of the starving children in Africa. I have African children. They don't want them either. (laughs) I have this conviction about cleaning my plate because it's very important and my conscience troubles me about it. Is it a sin not to clean your plate? There's no verse about it in the Bible. But my conscience bothers me. Actually, that's what your conscience is supposed to do. Your conscience, God gave you a conscience to testify to you about what you believe about right and wrong. That's what your conscience is supposed to do. Now, the goal of us as growing followers of Christ is to match as closely as possible our convictions about right and wrong with the scriptures so that. Uh, we we match in our understanding of right and wrong with the Bible, a- and sometimes though that can be a slow process. And the Apostle Paul in this chapter wants to equip the Roman Christians to to know how to treat one another, how to love one another in the midst of their differences, brothers and sisters. I have good news for you. If we get this, if we figure this out, how to love one another despite our convictions we will be a glowing, shining testimony to those outside of the church who don't know Christ. Because in our culture, it's becoming increasingly difficult to get along with, to accept, to welcome people you disagree with. It's becoming increasingly difficult. Anybody who disagrees with you about anything is your enemy, and you have to destroy them. There's no grace. There's no mercy. There's no differences that can be tolerated. If you disagree with me about anything, you are the enemy, That's how it works out there. That's not how it works in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in these first nine verses is Paul's opening salvo, his beginning argument. Our goal is to be a congregation with convictions that are shaped by the word, but where there is freedom in areas where we disagree about second, third, fourth order issues. We want to balance in our church knowledge and love. Now, how are we going to get there? So these first nine verses, Paul gives four commands. Two of them are primary. And then, in, starting in verse 4 or so, he tells us why we should take those commands seriously. And that's what we're going to do. To, we're going to look at that passage. We're going to unfold it under those two headings. First, we're going to talk about how we treat one another in the midst of our disagreement over disputable matters. And then secondly, we're going to talk about how, nope, why we treat one another. So how first and then why. And the how has to do, or maybe it's the what. What did I label that as? How, 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 how we treat one another. <laughs> I'm going on vacation tomorrow. Can you tell? So here we go. Four commands. Here's the first one. It's in verse 1. Accept one another. Accept one another. Romans 14:1. Accept the one whose faith is weak. Your translation might say receive or welcome. And the verb accept is crucial in this passage. It's here in verse 1, accept the one whose faith is weak. It's in verse 3, right at the end of verse 3. God has accepted them. Then it's in chapter 15, verse 7. Accept one another just as Christ Jesus accepted you. Um, to accept one uh, somebody else is to welcome them into your inner circle. It's to embrace them as a brother or a sister. It's to acknowledge you belong in the church. You're part of us. I'm part of you. No stiff-arming, but embracing them. And it appears, I think, that Paul is aiming this command here first, at least at first, at those who consider themselves strong in the faith. Notice that they're the ones who are to accept the one whose faith is Weak. Maybe it's because there were more people who were on the strong side and less who were on the weak side. Uh, as the passage unfolds, we're going to see the weak are those who have a lot of extra biblical convictions about what to eat and what to drink and how to observe certain days. Now, my translation says in verse 1, accept the one whose faith is weak. The text literally says, accept the one who is weak in faith. I think there's a difference. Uh, These weak Christians are not half Christians. They're not people who are holding on to Jesus in a feeble way. They're fully trusting him. But they appear not yet to have applied their faith uh, in Jesus to every area of life. So they have some extra biblical convictions. They have activities about which their consciences are particularly sensitive. Paul uses the word weak. It's not really a compliment, is it? I mean, who, who's out there going? Hey, that's me! Woohoo! I'm weak, right? Nobody, nobody's bragging about that. So implicit in this word is a desire that Paul has for these weak Christians to grow. But notice he does not address the strong by by emphasizing the need for the weak to grow. He he doesn't say to the strong, "Help these guys mature. Help help these guys get it together." And he says, "Love them, welcome them, embrace them." Accept them. That's his chief concern. More concerned than he is about the need of the weak to grow, he is concerned about love and unity in the congregation. The model for our acceptance, of course, is God himself. God has accepted them. How has God accepted you? (laughs) Remember the story of the prodigal son? It's a good story about how God accepts us welcomes us prodigal son of course came home guilty ashamed poor dirty smelling like pigs and his father ran to embrace him so standard regardless of your convictions run to embrace one another now here's the second command so accept one another is the the first command Uh, here's the second one don't quarrel with one another don't quarrel with one another the verbs are, are, are a little tricky here, but Paul is basically telling the, the Romans at the end of verse 1 not to get together. Don't, don't accept one another so that you can fight. D- don't do it with the purpose of quarreling over these disputable matters. Do you know anybody who likes to argue about unimportant things? <laughs> I hate to admit it, but this verse is here for me. Uh, Earlier in June, Kevin DeYoung wrote an article called uh, uh, Distinguishing Marks of a Quarrelsome Person. Uh, He lists 12 of them. I'm going to read all 12 of them to you because I think it's worth the time. Distinguishing Marks of a Quarrelsome Person. He says, you might be a quarrelsome person if, number one, you defend every conviction with the same degree of intensity. There are no secondary or tertiary issues tertiary issues everything is primary you've never met a hill you wouldn't die on <laughs> number 2 you are quick to speak and slow to listen you rarely ask questions and when you do it is to accuse or to continue prosecuting your case you are not looking to learn you are looking to defend dominate and destroy Number three, your only model for ministry and faithfulness is the showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, or the only Jesus you like is Jesus who cleared the money changers from the temple. Those are real examples in scripture, but the Bible is a book, and sarcasm and whips are not the normal method of personal engagements. Number four, you might be a quarrelsome person if you are incapable of seeing nuances and you do not believe in qualifying statements. Everything in life is black and white without any gray. Number five, you never give the benefit of the doubt. You do not try to read arguments in context. You put the worst possible construct on others' motives and when there's a less flattering interpretation, you go for that one. Number six, I like, you have no unarticulated opinions. (laughs) Do people know what you think of everything? They shouldn't. That's why you have a journal or a prayer closet or a dog. (laughs) Number seven, tell your dog what you think about those things. I don't know. Number seven, you are unable to sympathize with your opponents, you forget that sinners are also sufferers. You lose the ability to put someone else's yourself in someone else's shoes. Number eight on this list, you might be a quarrelsome person. If your first instinct is to criticize, your last instinct is to encourage. Quarrelsome people always see others in need of rebuke, rarely in need of refreshing. Number nine, you have a small grid and everything fits in it. Your view of life is a tiny prism such that you already know everything, what everything is about. Everything is a social justice issue. Everything is related to the regular principle. Everything is Obama's fault. Everything is about Trump. It's all about the feminists or the patriarchy or how my parents messed up my life. When all you have is a hammer, the rest of the world looks like a nail. Number ten. You derive a sense of satisfaction and spiritual safety in feeling constantly rejected. I know people like this. You know people like this who who um, this this it validates their spiritual experience when people hate them. I have I have enemies. I've made enemies, and, and that is proof that I am living for the right. Because that's that's uh, 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 um, how you how you know that you're you're right. If you're going to move for God, you're going to make friction. Uh, Here we go. We don't blame the victim, DeYoung says, but some people are constitutionally unable to exist except as a remnant. They must be persecuted. They must be maligned. They do not know how to live in peacetime, only in war. Number 11, you might be a quarrelsome person if... He's going to explain this one. You are always in the trenches with hand grenades strapped to your chest, never in the cafeteria with ice cream and ping pong. He says... I remember years ago talking to a returning serviceman in my church who told me sheepishly that his job in Iraq was to drive an armored, armed convoy for the ice cream truck. It was extremely dangerous escorting the vehicle through bomb-infested territory. This was brave, honorable work and important work. Even soldiers need ice cream once in a while. The amp doesn't need to be cranked up to 11 all the time. Seriousness about God is not the same as pathological seriousness about everything. Now here's number 12. You might be a quarrelsome person. If you have never changed your mind, if you haven't changed your mind on an important matter in several presidents, I wonder if you are a Christian or even alive. Of course, truth never changes, and neither should any of our convictions. But quarrelsome people stir up strife because, already knowing everything, they have no need to listen, learn, or ask questions. Does any of those sound familiar? Do any of those sound like they might apply to Romans 14 here? Don't quarrel with one another. Now we have to move on to the next two commands. These are really the most important ones. Do not treat others with contempt. Do not treat others with contempt. This is a particular command for the strong. Verse 3, look what it says. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. Don't look down on people who have different or more convictions than you do. To treat someone with contempt means to dismiss them, to to despise them, to see them as, as they have no value. You have nothing to add to my life. You know, the word translated contempt here actually describes how in the Gospels a couple of times uh, people treated the Lord Jesus in the midst of his trials and crucifixion. It, it means to he was treated as if he didn't matter. Here's a temptation you might face. I don't see this in our church very often, but it's a temptation that's in the world out there and our brothers and sisters so, well, follow me here, picture it. Uh, you're young and you're cool. You are free from all the hang-ups that your grandparents had with their lists. Your list of do's and don'ts is small. It matches with the Bible uh, pretty well, but it's shorter lists than, those, than, than church people used to have 40 years ago. The problem is you ha- you ha- there are people you know who have longer lists, and their longer lists make them uncool. You're cool. They're not. And since you're thinking strategically, you have come to see their inherent uncoolness, of, uh, uh, the inherent uncoolness of your fellow believers as a, as a roadblock. It, it stands in the way of you inviting people to church or sharing the good news about Jesus with your friends because you're cool and Jesus is cool, but there are a lot of his followers who are just not cool. And they're in the way. So there's a solution. Here's the solution. You could start your own cool church for cool people. Make it really cool. The church that slaps, that's what cool kids say, it slaps. They said that five minutes ago, I don't know if they say that anymore, my daughters will correct me later, but the church is cool, right? Make your church so cool that cool people who don't know Jesus will want to come. The problem in the church is that when we try to do cool, we usually do it poorly, and bad cool is worse than uncool every time, okay? Think of how your dad dresses, right, okay? So, But you're different, you're different, you're cool, and you could pull it off. And you could have a cool church to reach cool people for the cool Jesus. But remember what Jesus said. He did not say that it was by your cool that people will know that you are his followers. Did he? It is by your love for one another that people will know you're my followers. And that one another especially includes uncool people. You should think about this. It is not supernatural at all to be cool. Being cool does not require a miracle of any kind. But loving people who are different than you are does. Absolutely. Maybe it's your love or your lack of contempt for uncool people that is actually a better way for reaching people than by being cool. And, and I have to tell you, I think that if you start loving uncool people, you'll find that even with their longer lists of do's and don'ts, you'll find that they're a lot cooler than you think they are? I know you think about it. I'm not cool enough to have an opinion about that, but you think about that. might be worth thinking about. Don't treat others with contempt. Okay? Now here's the flip side of that command. Are you ready? Do not judge one another. Do not judge one another. Verse 3 again. It starts, the one who eats everything must not treat with contempt, the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge, the one who does, for God has accepted them. How does Paul understand human nature? Oh, Here's the two great temptations put right next to each other. Holding people with more scruples than you have with contempt and uh, uh, judging people who have less scruples than you do. I went to a conservative Christian college. It was a great college. I was really happy to be there. When we were there, we made fun of Bob Jones for having too many rules and schools like Messiah for not having enough. So here, have you been tempted in both of these directions? Uh, Everyone who has more convictions than I do is probably a legalist. Look at all their rules. They're probably a legalist. And everyone who has less convictions than I have, well, they probably just don't follow Jesus seriously like I do. But me, I'm in the middle with Jesus and Paul, and we're doing fine. <laughs> All my convictions are absolutely right. You're a legalist. You don't love Jesus. I'm doing really well here. The word judge, it's a broad word, um, here it means, it means to find fault or to criticize or condemn someone. It's the word that Jesus used. This is what he's talking about in Matthew 7 when he says, do not judge. There's a lot of confusion about this. We should be clear. Jesus is not saying in Matthew 7, 1 that you should not have opinions about moral matters. He delivered this in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. And trust me, Jesus has a view on moral matters. He speaks about sexual immorality. He speaks about giving. He speaks about divorce. He speaks about prayer. He is full of moral pronouncements. But what Jesus is opposed to here is harsh criticism. He's not opposed to insight made possible by biblical truth. He's opposed to this harsh, censorious criticism. Don't judge one another. He he gets both sides. Do not treat others with contempt. Do not judge one another. Now, if you struggle with that, we're going to follow follow along with me as we move to the second part of this passage where Paul moves from what to do, how to treat one another with these disputable matters, to the why we do these things. Why do we accept one another? Why do we not quarrel with one another? Why don't we treat one another with contempt? Why don't we judge one another? And the why is wrapped up here in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Verses 4 through 9 are a wonderful and beautiful meditation on the lordship of Jesus. He's he's Lord over all things and all people and all situations. And verse 4 begins with this question, Who are you to judge a fellow believer? You're not their master. Jesus is their master. Jesus has taken full responsibility for them. So the why that's driving our behavior here is the lordship of Jesus. And and I want to hang, hang our thoughts on two points that I want you to see that Paul makes. And the first one is that our confidence is in the Lord. Our confidence is in the Lord. When it comes to disputable matters and actually all things, our confidence is not chiefly in ourselves. It's not in our fellow brothers and sisters. It's in the Lord himself. And look how optimistic Paul is. <laughs> Verse 4, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servant, stand or fall. And they will stand. For the Lord is able to make them stand. This is incredibly freeing. So the Lord Jesus has given us responsibility for one another. Those responsibilities are summarized in our church covenant. Uh, We're to encourage one another. We're to help one another. We're to pray for one another, bear one another's burdens. Sometimes we discipline one another. Those are high and holy callings. And those responsibilities are to be focused on the central things of our faith. But Jesus himself takes final and ultimate responsibility for the condition of our brothers and sisters. We're brothers and sisters of one another, but we are servants together of the one Lord Jesus. And this is a, it is a tremendous freedom. It, 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 it moves us in our service towards one another with gladness. It is a great privilege to serve as an elder in this church. So the elders met on Thursday night. We prayed for you together. We strategized about how best to shepherd the congregation. It's a great privilege. And, and we feel it keenly when we meet to pray. But ultimately, you are the responsibility of the Lord Jesus. And he is more than capable of taking care of you. So we don't judge one another. We commit one another into the Lord's hands because our confidence is in him. Now in verses 5 through 9, Paul changes directions a little bit. He introduces another controversy. He talks about honoring special days. And I think in this passage, boy, he seems wildly optimistic about the Romans. I want to read the passage again in a minute. You see if you you, you agree with me about this. Um, First, another heading to hang some of your thoughts on. So first, our confidence is in the Lord. We don't judge one another because we're not uh, one another's masters. The Lord is. Our confidence is in Him. But secondly, our conduct is for the Lord. What we do, our conduct is for the Lord, to the Lord. Let's uh, read verses 5 through 9 again, shall we? One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Now look, whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever meat eats meat does so to the Lord. For they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Does Paul sound too optimistic here? Um, How does he know that all these people are doing all of these things for the Lord? I understand of having confidence in the Lord, yes, the Lord is able to I have confidence in, in the Lord, it's the rest of you people that I wonder about sometimes. But how is how is Paul so confident they're doing this for the Lord? Do you have room in your mind that people who do things that would violate your conscience in disputable matters, secondary, tertiary things, do you have confidence that they can do those things and do them for the Lord? Is it possible? Paul seems to think so. He's very optimistic here. It would be so easy to dismiss each other at this point, right? Those who eat anything, Paul, oh, they're not really doing it for the Lord. They just like steak. That's the, that's the reason they're doing what they're doing. They're immature and they're selfish. They haven't really prayed about it. And those who eat vegetables, it's not for the Lord. They're just trying to please all the other rule followers in their lives. It's not for God's sake. Paul, really? Really? When I ask questions like that, though, I have to go back to verse 4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? Stephen Ambrose wrote a lot of books about Dwight Eisenhower. He met with him in his home in Gettysburg. He was really an expert in Dwight Eisenhower's life. And President Eisenhower used to live according to maxims that he would quote to people often in his letters. And one of his maxims was, Never question a man's motives. His wisdom, yes, but never his motives. Maybe Paul intends us to take this up as a challenge a little bit. A question to ask ourselves uh, and and one another uh, gently about this. It is God's intention that every conviction we have and every action that flows from that conviction be unto the Lord. Is that the way you're living could you have a serious convic- uh, conversation with another follower of Jesus about this? So, we have different convictions in our congregation about drinking alcohol. Could you have a serious conversation with someone who disagrees with you? You go up to them and say, "Hey, I see that I understand you drink alcohol. I don't. It's against, it against violates my uh, convictions. Tell me, how do you drink alcohol for the Lord? How do you do it in a way that honors Do you have room in your life that that's actually a possibility? Hmm. Uh, It's time for another Charles Spurgeon story. So uh, Charles Spurgeon was once talking with a young man who was feeling uh, really uncertain. Someone had given him a box of cigars and, and he didn't know what to do about the cigars if he could take them in good conscience. And Charles Spurgeon said, I'll tell you what to do with them. Give them to me and I will smoke them to the glory of God. Is that possible? Uh, you know, Paul said that your, temple, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It, don't quote that verse too soon, especially if you've eaten Orioles recently. Can you eat Orioles to the glory of God? I sure hope so. <laughs> now, notice Paul's argument in this passage, right? He moves back and forth between life and... And death, life and death. Verse 7 None of us lives for ourselves alone, none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Why life and death? He's been talking about eating and drinking and days. Why does he all of a sudden talk about life and death? Here's his logic If the Lord Jesus is Lord of life and Lord of death, then he is also Lord of everything in between. Life and death and everything in between living and dying, is to be unto the Lord. That's how followers of Jesus, that's how we think about our lives. Everything under the Lord. Now, I want to think about that for just a minute, uh, in a moment, but I want to pause to think about this verse. Well, verse 8, it says, If we die, we die for the Lord. Some of you, dear friends, have lost someone you love dearly. And it was recent, or or maybe it wasn't recent, but it's so close to your heart, you still feel keenly this loss. And the, the passage says, if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord. Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the master of death. He was reigning supreme, and all of the circumstances of the death of the one you love are under his sovereign control. The timing, the place, the circumstances, they are all his. Psalm 116, 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. It's, it's precious, not in the sense that it's cute or sweet. That's not, that's not what precious means. Precious in that context means it's costly. It's valuable. It's worthy of being treasured. If you're a follower of Jesus, it doesn't matter if you are alive or dead You belong to Him. That's sweet comfort. The Lord is the Lord of life and death and everything in between. He's the Lord of eating and drinking and working and sleeping and vacationing and sewing and gardening and dressing. I mean what you put on your body, not on your salad, but that too, right? He's the Lord of your parenting, of your playing golf, of your doing your taxes, of your brushing your teeth. Life, death, and everything in between. Is that how you think about the things you do in the here and now? Why does Christ have this mastery? Verse 9 tells us. Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Now there's an odd word choice here and an odd word order. So my translation says, verse 9 for this reason Christ died and returned to life. That's an odd word. It's not the normal word in the Bible for resurrection. It means to spring to life. The emphasis is he's really alive. Like it was a massive change. He sprung to life. Sprang to life. He springed it to life. Right? And then, then he, he puts the dead first. Why does he put the dead first? We're so used to reading the living and the dead that that's what I did, right? Why does he put the dead first and then the living? I think Paul is here reminding us that it's actually when we spring to life with him that real life begins. You're alive now. If the Lord tarries, you're going to be dead at some point in time, and then, then you'll really live.
1: Then you're going to be alive.
0: Uh, compared to that life that is to come, this life is kind of gray. Kind of sad. But then there's life. I think that's why he does that here. What is it that has given Christ this supremacy? This reminds me of Philippians 2, doesn't it? The Lord Jesus was obedient to his Father unto death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him. Gave him the name that is high above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It reminds me of the end of uh, or Hebrews 12. The Lord Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. The Lord Jesus is the worthy Lord because he is our sin bearer, he is our Savior, He's the one who rescues us from the wrath of God. On the cross, He paid the penalty we owed because of our sin. And He rose again. He died in our place for our sins. And all who turn to Him and believe in Him have life and forgiveness in His name. And now, now, now we live for Him. Brothers and sisters, that person that you have, that you know, who has fewer convictions than you do, is not trying to ruin your life. He's not trying to ruin the church. She's not making compromises that will lead to nothing but ruinous, worldly dissipation. The Lord Jesus is her Lord and has taken responsibility for her. And that person who has more convictions than you is not stuck in some legalistic morass. They are living lives that they believe please the Lord unto him, for him. Astrophysicist Michael Hart wrote a book called "The 100." Uh, he took uh, on the task of trying to answer this very provocative question: Who are the 100 most influential people in history? Of all the human beings who have ever lived, who had the deepest impact on the lives that we live today? Well, I'm not sure who you put on your list. Sigmund Freud is on his list. and Louis Pasteur, the French biologist and chemist, is on. The list. Uh, Hart listed these 100 people. He actually had the audacity to rank them. <laughs> We're in a church. You want to know what he did with Jesus, don't you? He said, Jesus is the inspiration for the most influential religion in history. Hart, he said this, Jesus had an extraordinary, impressive personality, which is the most bland compliment you could ever give. Uh, based on Jesus' impressive Influenced throughout history, Hart ranked Jesus as the third most important person in history. This will make some of you mad. Right after Muhammad and the scientist Isaac Newton. Newton was a Christian. Newton would bow to number three on the list. So Hart is answering this question. Every person has to answer, what are you going to do with Jesus? Where is he on your list? Because he died and rose again, he is Lord and Master and Savior. The way you rank him is the most important thing about your life. It's a lot more important than the convictions that people around you have about disputable matters. Recognizing that is how the weak and the strong fellowship together. Let's pray, shall we? Oh dear Father, we have gathered together today and we have met to proclaim again and remind one another that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord because he died and sprang to life. And, and, and that fills us with joy. Lord, I pray today that it would also shape our perspective about disputable matters. Under the banner of the supreme lordship of Jesus, we pray that you would enable us in our congregation to accept one another, accept all who say Jesus is Lord, to embrace them and welcome them as brothers and sisters. And that you, by your grace under the lordship of Jesus, would turn us from our quarreling ways, our judging ways, our dismissive ways, Lord, this massive truth, Father, this massive truth about the Lord Jesus is to shape how we love one another. Make it so. Make it so, Lord, that in our congregation the cool and the uncool gather together to sing the praises of our great, great Savior. Help us. You know that we need this word because you uh, uh, included it in Romans 14. You know we struggle with this. So help us by the Spirit so that we might honor you. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.